910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. We've been exploring for the last few weeks the life of the incarnate Jesus while he walked on earth. And doing that, we'd be remiss if we didn't do an episode on the miracles he did while he was here. So that's what we're going to do today. To start, Chris, we should define what constitutes a true miracle, because the word miracle is used so often today to describe things that really aren't miracles at all. For instance, like the birth of a baby. You know, we call it a miracle, but in reality, giving birth to children is actually one of the most normal, natural events that there is. That's so true. You know, a miracle is an event that involves direct and powerful activity of God in the world, and it transcends all the ordinary laws of nature. Miracles are extraordinary occurrences. They're, they can only be attributed to God, to a work of God. They're, they can't in any way be a natural type of thing or be explained. Sometimes they're done by God himself, and sometimes God does them through other people like Moses or Elijah or Elisha or the apostles, but they're always unexplainable by ordinary laws of nature. Always. That's right. And before we get into the miracles that Jesus did, we should take a look at miracles in the Bible for the big picture, because there are some things about them that might be surprising to some people. When we think about how God works, we tend to think of him working in the miraculous instead of the everyday ordinary events of history. It's common to have the idea that God worked in miraculous ways the whole way through the Bible, but that's just not the case. No, it's not. Miracles are not the way that God works in most of history. Looking at the whole Bible, there aren't many passages about miracles. I'm going to quote Dr. Joel Arnold from Bob Jones Memorial College in the Philippines. He says, and I'm quoting, There are only around 265 specific passages, though a number of these record the same miracles several times, such as in the Gospels or in the Old Testament and historical books. But it's not as much as you think, not in the context of the entire Bible. By word count, only about 5% of the biblical accounts record miracles. And it's important to know that these miracles happened in clearly discernible clusters throughout the Bible. Dr. Arnold actually plotted them on a graph that shows which books of the Bible we see them in. And for those of us who are visual learners, you can find that at proclaimanddefend.org. The places these large clusters are found after creation surround three times. The exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, miracles tend to be clustered right around something major happening. They point to God doing something new or about to do something new. They should get people's attention. Miracles were accompanied by the proclamation of the word of God, and they authenticated the person that was proclaiming the word of God. It showed that God sent those people. If we look at the first cluster of miracles centered around the exodus from Egypt, we see these things are true. Moses didn't think the Israelites would believe that God had sent him, so the Lord empowered him to perform miracles to authenticate him. And at that point, something new was about to happen. God was about to move his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. 
And this miraculous time is accompanied by the word of God. We know that because Moses is given the law by God, and he in turn gives the law of God to the people and calls them to worship the one true God. And the same things are true about the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, which is where the next big cluster of miracles occur. Elijah and Elisha were arguably the most powerful prophets of God. They proclaimed God's message to his people, accompanied by miracles, authenticating them as God's true prophets. They called the people to revival during one of the darkest times in Israel's history, when idolatry was rampant and Baal worship, which is one of the worst forms of pagan worship, was very prominent. And something new was about to happen. Only 75 years after Elisha's death, the northern kingdom, Israel, was taken into exile because the people didn't heed the word of God, and instead they continued in their sin of idolatry. Exactly. And the miracles of Jesus and the miracles done through the disciples at the start of the church is the biggest cluster of miracles. Jesus's miracles demonstrated that he was the Messiah and that he was the divine son of God. The miracles worked through his disciples were evidence of God working through them to start the church. Jesus's miracles accompanied his preaching and teaching. He was calling people to repentance and giving them warnings about continuing in their sin. His disciples' miracles were accompanied by those same things. And Jesus was the advent of something new, as we know. The old ceremonial law was fulfilled, and he was the final sacrifice for sin. The church era was about to begin at that time. So, Chris, let's get started looking at the miracles that Jesus did. There's about 37 of them, so obviously we won't be able to cover them all. We'll start with Jesus's first miracle, turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And that story is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So Jesus is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee with his mom and his disciples, and they run out of wine. And Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. Yeah, I'll read the rest. John 2, 4 through 11 says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Addressing a woman as a woman wasn't unusual and it wasn't a sign of disrespect, but it's a little strange that Jesus would address his mother this way. However, just like Jesus sort of separated himself from Joseph, his earthly father at the temple, this may be a way of stating a sort of separation from his mother. We don't know why they ran out of wine, but nothing happens without a reason. In the Old Testament, wine, but never drunkenness, was seen as a sign of joy and God's blessing, according to Psalm 104, 15, and Proverbs 3.10, as well as some other places. So not having any more wine at this wedding would have been symbolic of the spiritual dryness of first century Judaism. 
And it's fitting then that this was Jesus's first miracle. He's ushering in something new. In contrast to spiritual dryness, his people would be filled to the brim, so to speak, with the Holy Spirit. And just like the wine that Jesus provides at the end of the banquet was better than the first wine served, this new thing Jesus is ushering in is in fact superior to what was first. Hebrews 8 verse 6 says, but now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Amen to that. So for the rest of the miracles that we'll cover today, we're going to go to the book of Mark and we're going to look at some of the miracles there. We'll start in chapter six with the feeding of the 5,000, something that's found in all four gospels, showing that it's got to be pretty important. Just to give some background, John the Baptist is dead. Jesus has called all 12 of the apostles and they've been with him for a while. He's been teaching them. They've seen him do several miracles and they've seen Jesus be rejected by some people, but not everyone. Jesus also has a pretty large following at this point made up of mostly Jews. The apostles had already been sent out by Jesus to proclaim that people should repent, according to Mark 6, 12. They've just returned and are telling Jesus about all they've been doing. But the huge group of followers just won't leave any of them alone. Jesus can see they're tired and they're hungry. And he had to be too. He was preaching all day. So he tries to take them away. And according to verse 32, in a boat to a desolate place by themselves for rest. But they don't end up by themselves because the people are so desperate when they see Jesus and the apostles leaving in the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, they run what could have amounted to up to four miles. And they got to the opposite side of the lake before the rest of them did in the boat. Some pretty fast running. (laughs) That's some pretty fast running. And think about this, Rose. There were 5,000 men plus women and children. So let's say what, at least 10,000 people? I'm just going to say this for reference sake, about 20,000 people run the Boston Marathon. So if you've ever seen that big group starting out, that's kind of a, a half of that is kind of a picture for you. When Jesus sees the desperate crowd, he has compassion on them because he says they were like sheep without a shepherd, according to Mark 6, 34. Jesus's words harken back to Moses asking God to raise up a new spiritual leader for the people as they're about to enter the promised land in Numbers 27, 17. And it points back to Ezekiel 34, 45, where God promises to shepherd the people again directly since Israel's leaders had failed. So that's what's happening here. And Jesus starts teaching the crowd and he teaches until it grows late. And at that point, the apostles come to Jesus and say, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And that's in verse 36. Jesus answers them in verse 37 and says, you give them something to eat. Their comeback to Jesus shows that the apostles aren't understanding yet who Jesus is. So Jesus gives them clues. A large group of people being in a desolate place with nowhere to get food should have reminded them of God feeding the people in the desert with manna and quail. The 12 basketfuls should have reminded them of the 12 tribes. Even the way Jesus divides them into groups of fifties and hundreds hinted at it, but they don't get it. Jesus takes the only food available, five loaves, two fish, and creates food, 
enough to feed everyone till they were satisfied and they still had some left over. What can we take away from this miracle? First, Jesus saw the people were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed a spiritual shepherd. They needed teaching more than food. And the crowd seems to be fine with that. They seem hungry for the word. And Jesus teaching them for hours before they got fed is what happened. Jesus was taking care of their spiritual needs first because that was their most important need. It doesn't mean that he didn't have compassion for their physical needs, as we can see by the fact that he feeds them. And we need to make sure that when we're doing mission work, that we're not just supplying physical needs, but that we're taking care of the people's spiritual needs by proclaiming the gospel message to them. That's right. And we talked about in the last episode, doing both. Also, we see Jesus was trying to teach the apostles two things. First, depend on God and don't try to be self-sufficient. Remember, they had returned from going out to proclaim the message of repentance, and Jesus had sent them with nothing for their journey. We're really quick to forget what God has done for us in the past. The disciples didn't need to be self-sufficient, and neither do we. In fact, God's going to break us of it if we don't learn to rely on him. And the second thing he was trying to teach them was he was trying to get them to see that he was God. He created food. All those hints of manna in the desert, etc., attested to the fact that Jesus was God. Absolutely, but they didn't get it yet. So Mark 6:45 tells us that when they were finished, this I'm, I'm quoting here, Mark 6:45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Rose, the disciples didn't get it, but the crowd was starting to, according to John's account of this miracle in John 6, 14 to 15. And that gives us a hint to why Jesus sent the disciples away so quickly. John 6, 14 to 15 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So what's going on here? Well, the people were waking up that Jesus was the prophet foretold, but they wanted to make him a political leader. That wasn't what Jesus was here for. Is it possible he sent the disciples away quickly so that they wouldn't get caught up in trying to make him a political leader along with the crowd? We're not told that, but they're sent away quickly for some reason. And Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, Mark 6, 48 to 50 tells us, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Okay, so these miracles, walking on water and stopping the wind, is Jesus showing that he can control nature. Again, it's showing them he's God. Job 9 verse 8 talks about God trampling on the waves of the sea. You know, even if the apostles didn't think of that verse, after what they just witnessed with the loaves and the fish, you might think that at least they wouldn't have been so terrified when they saw someone walking on the water, and even if they didn't know it was Jesus right away. But this account in Mark tells us that they hadn't understood about the loaves and the fishes, 
And it says, but their hearts were hardened. These were Jesus's chosen apostles. Jesus had been shining the spotlight on himself to show his divinity. Yet they're lacking in faith and in Jesus's power because they aren't seeing what he's been showing them. And there's a lesson for us here. Believers have the word of God and the Holy Spirit living in us to help us understand. We have fellow believers to worship with. We have communion as a means of grace to strengthen our faith when we participate in it with our brothers and sisters. We have baptism, which is another means of grace that can strengthen us, not only in our own baptism, if we haven't been already, but in witnessing others being baptized. But if we're not taking advantage of all these things given to us to help us know God, to understand him, to learn to trust him, then we need to examine ourselves and ask God to point out to us why we're not taking advantage of them. Very good points. You know, even a believer's heart can get hardened, not to the point of the Pharisees or Pharaoh that we lose salvation. We can't lose our salvation. But we can become slow to perceive and understand, and we can lack faith and trust when hard times come because we don't appreciate what we've been given that would help us if we only took the time and took advantage of it. So this is a wake-up call. All right, so going on in the book of Mark, Mark 6, 53 to 56 says, when they had crossed over, they came to a land at Genesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. One of the most popular examples of this is the woman with the issue of bleeding who touches Jesus's garment and is healed from chapter five of Mark. She was an outcast because of her disease, something she couldn't help. God is perfectly holy and any defilement you had prevented you from being able to worship and draw near to God. She would have been considered unclean according to Jewish ceremonial laws that we see in Leviticus and Numbers. Right, and anything or anyone that she touched would have been considered unclean. In fact, when she was in public, she would have had to declare herself unclean so that no one would touch her by accident and become defiled themselves. Unclean was intended to be a picture of sin and to show just how sinful our lives by nature are. It was almost impossible to go through a day and not be contaminated by something and become unclean. Yeah, it was. Just being a woman with your period or even touching one, having a skin blemish, mold or mildew in your house, semen discharge, eating something unclean, all this kept you from being able to approach God in worship until certain rules were followed and the proper sacrifice was made. So the woman with the discharge touched Jesus's garment, something that would have made him unclean if that were possible, which it isn't. Right. Lagan Duncan pictures the crowd thinking, don't touch her, Jesus. Don't touch her. Don't let her touch you. You'll be unclean. But Jesus is doing something new. In front of the crowd, Jesus tells her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The statement implies both physical and spiritual healing. Jesus makes it abundantly clear both here and lots of other places that it's faith in him that makes them well. 
And Jesus expands on that teaching in Mark 7, verses 14 to 22, followed by another miracle showing the faith of a Gentile woman in verses 24 to 30. And I'll read those verses. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus and the disciples are still tired here. So to try and get away, they leave and they go to this region of Tyre and Sidon. But they're like celebrities and they can't get away, not even among the Gentiles. Jesus and the apostles are in the same region where Elijah performed more than one miracle for a Gentile widow named Zarephath the story that's found in 1 Kings 17. And here's another Gentile woman with a child who needs help. This passage is about who gets presented with the message of the gospel first and who's second. And we talked about this before. The order was the Jews first, then the Gentiles. In Matthew 15, 24, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sends the apostles only to the lost sheep of Israel in Matthew 10, 5 to 7. But we know Gentiles were always going to be part of God's people. In fact, many already were throughout the Old Testament. And again, as we looked at in last episode, the message does go out to the Gentile world, as we all know, because most of us are Gentiles. Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which is another word for Gentile. But the message went to sinful, unrepentant Israel first. Jesus isn't telling the woman that she didn't have any right to his message and healing at all. He clearly leaves that door open in the passage. He's telling her that she's out of order and the Gentiles' time hasn't yet come. Right. Jesus calls the woman a dog, but it's not the same term the Jews used for the Gentiles referring to them as unclean wild scavengers. The term that Jesus used meant little house dogs or pets that some Jews had. Still, hearing Jesus say that had to be hard. She's distraught about her daughter. But this woman has a faith that's amazing. She's heard Jesus was in town, so she goes to him immediately, it says. And she's prostrating herself at Jesus' feet and calling him Lord. It's the only time recorded that Jesus is addressed by a Gentile woman as Lord. She doesn't balk at being called a dog either or being told that she's not first. She's happy to be assigned a place with the dogs if it's under Jesus's banquet table. Despite the harsh words from Jesus, she doesn't give up. She renews a request for healing. And when Jesus says that her daughter was healed, she leaves believing him. That's great faith. And I give her a lot of credit. Absolutely. That's amazing faith. This Gentile woman's faith is a huge contrast to the Jewish leaders and the apostles. If Jesus assigned us a place with the dogs, would we be offended? We aren't owed anything, and we deserve nothing but judgment. Are we okay with that? 
Are we as persistent as this woman when we need help? Those are all good questions to ponder, Rose. And that gives us a lot to think about. So after returning from Tyre and Sidon, some people bring their deaf friend with a speech impediment to Jesus, and they ask him to lay hands on it. Those are their words, lay hands on, will you lay hands on it? Then Mark 7, 33 to 35 tells us, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he, meaning Jesus, put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. There's only one other time the word for speech impediment, magalelis, is used, and that's in Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6. And that verse says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Those verses come on the heels of Isaiah describing the desolate wilderness sin had caused the nation of Israel to become, which is followed by a picture of restoration. And Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy here. But there's always questions about Jesus spitting and touching the man. So Chris, you want to talk about that? Oh, there are questions. (laughs) He spit on his finger and touched the man's tongue. That's really the thing that people want to know. The question commentators can't answer was, did Jesus spit and touch the man's tongue with a spit or just spit and then touch the man's tongue, not with spit? And Rose, I don't really think it matters and we don't know. So, but what seems to be going on here is that Jesus was trying to explain to the man what he was going to do, heal his deafness and his speech impediment. Remember, the man was deaf and other people brought him. Who knows if he knew why they brought him? You know, the friends asked Jesus to lay hands on him. Most commentators believe that Jesus took the man aside by himself and showed him what's going to happen with signs because Jesus wanted the man to have faith that he was going to do it. If Jesus had just walked up and laid hands on the man healing him, it wouldn't have proved the man's faith in any way. That's right. And you know what, Chris, if I was going to get spit on by anyone, I'll take Jesus' spit. (laughs) I will too. The order of healing here goes along with the gospel message. First, we hear it, then we proclaim it to others. But the last verse in this account says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Jesus does this over and over again with people and with demons, and the demons know him because he's their creator. Jesus wanting people to keep quiet about him is called the messianic secret. It wasn't Jesus's time yet, and the people didn't understand who he was or what he came for. So Jesus asked them not to tell. The people that Jesus says this to have faith, but they're not obeying. Our faith should make us obedient. You're right. It's easy to glance over these times that Jesus tells them to keep quiet because we think to ourselves that the people are actually doing something good by telling because they're spreading the good news about Jesus. But instead, they really should be obeying him. And that's what we should think of when we read that. 1 Samuel 15, 22 is what comes to mind when I think about this. It says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 
obeying is important for a believer. So we should be thinking that when we read those passages. Absolutely. All right, Rose, let's talk about the feeding of the 4,000 that's found in Mark 8, 1 through 10. I've heard people say this feeding is the same feeding as the 5,000, but that's not the case. And we know it's not because Mark and Matthew's gospel contain both accounts. And why would they if they were the same feeding? And what's the difference? If he can do it once, he can certainly do it twice. And there's other proofs that these accounts are different. First, this one says, again, a great crowd gathered. And in this one, the word for basket is different than in the first. In the account of 5,000, there were small basketfuls left over. In this feeding of the 4,000, the word for basket implies it's a large basket that's left over. This time, they're in the Decapolis, which is a mostly Gentile area, whereas before they were in a mostly Jewish area. Having both miracles in scripture shows us that Jesus has compassion on both Jews and Gentiles, that he offers healing to both, and that he meets the needs of both. They give us a picture of the church. Absolutely. Okay, so one more miracle that we're going to take a look at is the healing of a blind man. It's also from Mark. It's chapter 8, verses 23 to 26, and I'll read it. It says, And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So obviously Jesus could have healed the man instantly, but he didn't. This is a picture of the spiritual eyes of the apostles. They're slowly awakening to the reality and the perspective of who Jesus is and what's to come. Even after seeing Jesus feed thousands of people with virtually no food to do it, twice, 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 after seeing Jesus control nature, heal sick people, restore limbs, restore life, the people closest to him still don't fully get it. The takeaway for us is that we have these and other miracles of Jesus recorded in scripture for us. We need to believe them. And of course, everything else that scripture says. And we need to trust in faith that he's the Messiah and that he died to save us. We do. We need to have faith without miracles, though. In John 20, verse 29, after Thomas asked Jesus to prove who he was, Jesus said, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So, Rose, going back to what we said at the beginning, the miracles happening through the Bible, mostly in clusters, shows us a few things. First, God mostly works providentially in the ordinary, everyday events of life not in miracles, even in biblical times. Think about it. Joseph from the book of Genesis didn't have miracles happening in his life before or during his time that he spent in Egypt. Ruth didn't have miracles happening in her life. King David didn't have miracles happening in his life. Neither did Solomon or Esther or most of the other people from the Bible. Yet God was always working. So we should not be looking for signs and wonders and miracles as we go through our lives. That's an excellent point. The way of salvation has been clearly shown to us in scripture. 
Hebrews 2, 3 to 4 tells us, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's the end of scripture. Once Jesus was revealed and the church age got rolling, there's been no need for miracles in the sense of God grabbing people's attention to listen to his message. To quote one pastor, miracles are like the siren that goes off as a submarine is emerging from the depths of the sea. It's letting everyone know to watch out. But once the submarine is above water, the sound of the siren is no longer needed. In fact, for it to continue to blare would actually prove to be a distraction for what's right in front of us. Great quote. I think, I, I, I love that quote. And, you know, this doesn't mean that God can't or doesn't work in extraordinary ways today in response to our prayers. He may provide healing of a disease with or without medical intervention or do similar things, but they don't qualify as miracles in the more narrow and arguably biblical sense of the term as God getting our attention to hear some message that's new. And although Christians disagree on whether or not miracles still happen today, we should never look at them as a foundation for our faith. It's our faith and trust in Jesus's death on the cross as payment for our sin and his resurrection that saves us. We can't stake our belief or unbelief on whether or not we've seen miracles. Agreed completely. Seeing miracles doesn't make people come to God in repentance. Lots of people saw Jesus do miraculous things and they never believed. The Pharisees saw him do miraculous things and they still had him crucified. The clusters of miracles we just talked about were accompanied by the word of God. It's scripture that people with hearts that have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit respond to, not miracles. Amen. And one more thing to say is that since we know that the canon of scripture is closed and Jesus had the final word in his revelation to John, there won't be any apostolic messengers authenticated by miracles. There are no new apostolic messengers, as we clearly showed and said in the last episode. Amen to that. We hope you're enjoying our Advent series about Jesus. I know I am. I am too. If so, please leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen on and tell your friends and family about it or share the episodes on social media. We'd appreciate it. Have a blessed day, everyone. 